I'm like, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. <laughs> Give me this. Hold this thing of Majorna. I was like, that's, uh, I don't know, the genus is Tederida. Um, maybe it's Tederida brasiliensis. That's, um, that's probably a Myotis. Maybe, maybe, and he was like, you really are kind of a freaky kid. Like, this is, <laughs> like why do you know this? But, um. Welcome to Ohio Sci, where we explore new science and technology being done in Ohio. We talk to the researchers on the cutting edge of biotech, energy, ag tech, and more, and let them explain what they're finding, how it works, and where all of these discoveries are taking us in the future. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Ben Finley and Michelle Gatchel. Hey, welcome to Ohio Side, a podcast where we explore new research being done in the state of Ohio, like research on alternative energy sources, lab-grown protein, and whether vampire bats suck the blood of chicken bums. Okay, I'm sorry, this interview you're about to hear with Dr. Gerald Carter of Ohio State University is so much more complex than that, but I couldn't get that one factoid out of my head. Carter actually studies the fascinating social interactions between vampire bats. His research into how they live with and communicate with and nurture each other is changing the way people look not only at these creatures, but in some ways at animals. I first read about Carter in Scientific American, where he was noted in a February 2023 article talking about how the way that we think about animal communication is changing. And in this podcast, we get a close-up lens on some of that work. Carter has been a bat fanatic all his life, as you'll hear. One of my favorite parts of this interview is getting to hear the way a pure research scientist thinks, the open-minded way in which he considers scientific questions. The other part is that we get to hear about vampire bats. Talking to him about these unique animals, the way they eat, the way they communicate, was so enthralling that we were there for two hours. Of course, we're not going to hammer you with two hours of bat talk, but you do get one in a bit. And this is the shortened version. We've put up a longer version of this interview on our website, ohioside.com, if you just can't get enough. And that's enough of me talking right now. I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Gerald Carter, Associate Professor in the Department of Evolution, Ecology, and Organismal Biology at The Ohio State University. I'm Jerry Carter. I'm an Associate Professor at The Ohio State University. I'm a behavioral ecologist. I study the social lives of bats. Nice. And just so you know, I'm a bat enthusiast. Oh, great. We have the Ohio Bat Festival. Oh, you do? Do you know about that? We are coming. Oh, we, we, are we are coming. We had the first one last year, and uh, we're doing it again this year. So, How did you get into bats? I have been obsessed with bats since I was two years old. Two? Yeah. So my mom is... Uh, it's a funny story. I don't know how much of a tangent to go on, but my mom is from a tribe in the Philippines, a, a headhunting tribe called the Kalinga people. Oh, nice. My dad met... My mom, because he was in the Peace Corps, he was over there, and that's how they met. But when my mom was a little girl, she would hunt bats. They was like one of the things they ate. So she would climb up trees and then I guess spear them. And then, but um, I went there several times as a baby, and I don't really remember. But the last time I went, I was two years old, and it's one of my earliest memories. Is one of these large bats that are called flying foxes. So these are big, big bats, vampire. like five foot wingspans. Oh wow. And it's like the size of a small chicken. They have them at the zoo. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so one of these bats was, there's no photograph of this, but it's it's very memorable. I, I have the image in my mind. One of these bats was hanging there. It had like a rubber band around its mouth, and I wanted to touch it or something. Mm -hmm. And somebody was saying, no, you can't, don't touch that. And then years later, it must have been 
kindergarten or first grade or something, I uh, saw that bat in an encyclopedia, like a picture encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I remember that also. And I pretty much remember that from around that standpoint until now, I've been obsessed with bats. Uh. So when I was a little kid, people called me Bat Boy. I had like little (laughs) bat books that I checked out from the library and just kept checking out the same (laughs) bat books over and over again. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah. So how did you I then totally pursue that. that? What did you do in high school, college? Well, how did yeah, you get I mean, here? so that was that just continued from my whole life. But also, <laughs> when I was in high school, I became really interested in cooperation in in human societies, mm-hmm. and I was really interested in these highly cooperative societies like the Amish, where you know people come together and build houses. And all. I was we really interested. You know, like every. I, <laughs> You know, I was really interested in, you know, socialism, communism and stuff, you know, in, in high school and sort of how do you structure society and all of that. And so I was really interested in cooperation. And then eventually I ended up studying cooperation in bats. It's like the perfect <laughs> intersection <laughs> yeah. of these two things. Um, and yeah, but I didn't really get into um, the sort of social evolution theory and cooperation theory stuff until the end of my undergraduate in the beginning of graduate school. Did you go school. here for school under? No, I went to Cornell. It's just changed my whole life. I mean, there's like this line going down my life where before <laughs> and after that, my whole world changed. Perception of the, where you're heading. Yeah, and it, what was interesting was all of these things that I had been studying on my own, which had no relevance to anything at the time. You know, I was learning different species of bats, like in high school. Mm-hmm. It's like nobody cares or knows anything about this. And then when I went to Cornell University, I immediately, well, yeah, college for me was like this Awakening. buffet of, I mean, it's just <laughs> access to so much stuff and so many different kinds of people doing things. And I remember I went to a lab um, at Cornell. There was a graduate student there named Dan Riskin, who's now, um, he's like a TV scientist sort of I mean he did it he was he actually was going to be a tenure track professor in university and then he went into like science communication and then did a science show on TV and he's mm-hmm. like quasi famous in Canada such that when I was going into Canada once I I said oh I was telling the border person I study bats and I said like Dan Riskin like that's how famous he was, <laughs> yeah. was. but anyway um so, so now he, they say like Jerry <laughs> no, well he was um he was a PhD student at, at Cornell and I wanted to get into research so I went and met with him and I remember him saying, so you, you really into bats? And I was like, yeah, I love bats. I know everything about bats. I'm like, said something yeah. like that, which you should probably say when you're a first-year <laughs> undergraduate. And so he had all these specimens on the, on the, uh, in the lab, and like in, in you know, formaldehyde, formaldehyde or whatever, yeah. and he started pulling them out. And he said, what's this? And I looked at it, and it was like that scene from Jurassic Park where the kid is, like, identifying the dinosaurs that (laughs) he's been, like, waiting. I'm like, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. (laughs) Hold this thing I'm drawing on. I was like, that's, uh, I don't know, the genus is Tederida. Maybe it's Tederida brasiliensis. That's that's probably a myotis. Maybe my, you know, so I was just naming it. And he was like, you really are kind of a freaky kid. Like, like, why do you know this? But, um... Because you're saying Latin and everything. Yeah, I mean, it was, like, the proudest moment of my life. Like, oh, my goodness, all of this stuff that I've been reading is finally paying off now. Like, yeah, and then I I got interested in animal behavior at Cornell. I was originally interested in conservation. um, And then I got interested in behavior just because it was just so much fun, basically. I mean, it was so interesting. And the questions were just 
kind of um, I found conservation to be important but really depressing right because you're just studying <laughs> yeah. how everything's in decline yeah and then you make recommendations and nobody pays attention yeah and um, I always wanted to come back to conservation so I finally have done that so I'm you know trying to get involved so I'm on the board of directors of bat conservation international you know doing things like the Ohio bat fest so I I think a lot of, if you want to make a difference in conservation, you know, it's not just the science, it's also a lot of the sort of like political stuff or, um, you know, education and advocating for certain policies and things. Um, so I have been involved in conservation in that way, but I, I just, I ended up switching sort of from management, bat management to animal behavior. Um, and then I got interested in this whole question of cooperation, mm-hmm. which I'd always been interested in, but sort of started to understand this like theory of the evolution of cooperation which is a big subfield it's one of the big questions in evolutionary biology and so the question is how is it so in biology to frame it in biological terms it's you know if you have genes for creating traits uh you know at what prevents this cheating what prevents individuals from exploiting a cooperative trait of another individual if I'm only taking care of my offspring and feeding my offspring, and you're feeding everyone's offspring, I'm gonna have more offspring than you, and so your genes should go away. But instead, what we find is that there's cooperative traits at every level of biology. Genes cooperate within the genome. Individuals cooperate within societies. Members of different species cooperate. And like, why, why is that? Mm-hmm. There's all these different grandiose theories about why, and they've all sort of converged, and you can explain it in different ways, but basically it's, you know, that somehow the cooperators unite with each other and and create groups where you have cooperative individuals sort of self-assorting through partner choice or through finding individuals that have certain traits or you enforce cooperation by punishing rewarding choosing more cooperative partners and often it's multiple of these forces working together so there have been multiple um, explanation. So one of explanations, for instance, kin selection, the idea that individuals preferentially help their kin, therefore those genes are perpetuated. Another idea is reciprocity. You follow a, a rule like if you help me, I'll help you. Or um, and some version of that is partner choice, that every individual is looking to sort of link up with the most cooperative partners, which creates a competitive mm-hmm. situation where you want to be as cooperative as possible to be chosen by other individuals. Um, <laughs> and then there's also a bunch of situations in which for me to help you automatically creates a benefit for me so if i help you you have more offspring your offspring help keep my offspring warm so we all benefit if we have more offspring because we all just automatically benefit and there's it's difficult to cheat there's no way to like cheat and what it seems like is a lot of uh, the evidence is basically showing us that all of these factors can can play a role and can interact with each other in interesting ways and so now it's sort of the theories kind of worked out and the question is like for each scenario what are the relative importance of these different factors and often it's multiple factors mm-hmm. so if you look at eusocial insects they're highly related they're families but they also have a policing system where individuals a lot of people think the workers can't reproduce but a lot of times they can reproduce but when they reproduce when they're not supposed to they're supposed to help the queen reproduce that's the way an insect colony works but a lot of these eusocial insects, the workers will occasionally lay their own eggs. The other worker, workers will kill those eggs and even punish those workers because they're deviating from what they're supposed to do. So you have um, 
there's an incentive to cooperate because they're related and share genes. There's an incentive to co cooperate because they're all policing each other's behavior. And there's an incentive to cooperate because as a unit, each colony is in competition with other colonies, and colonies that are dysfunctional get wiped out by other colonies that are highly cooperative. All of those forces are acting at the same time. Yeah. And is it all genetic-based? Is there any thought, um, any research no. into whether some of this is passed down, like they learn and they tell each other? Yeah, so, the, I mean, the question of, like, the role of culture, Yeah. I think that's a very active area. So I think the, the genetic side of it, we basically know that, um, that kin selection, the, the shared genes, plays a huge role. So basically all real altruism that you see, that's, um, that's genetic. <laughs> um, and then there's a lot of stuff that we would call altruistic, but a biologist wouldn't necessarily call altruistic, like most of what humans do, mm -hmm. which, which is altruistic in the psychological sense, but it's not altruistic in the sense of you're sacrificing your offspring. That's what it means in biology. Oh. <laughs> so uh, altruism <laughs> in biology means that you uh, are more, you, you die or have fewer offspring. That's how altruistic you're being, like what an ant worker is doing. So I'm never going to have offspring. I'm only going to help you have offspring. That's not the way that humans cooperate. Humans cooperate in mutually beneficial ways. So most of our traits are we're sensitive to being exploited. We don't want to be exploited by others. We want to help others and also help ourselves. But um, it's not 100% genetic. Uh, it's not 100% like the sharing of genes, but that plays a big role. And then what we're increasingly finding is that enforcement is important in many systems where we, we didn't realize that they're actually enforcing the cooperation in both directions. Okay. Gotcha. So um, the uh, work that you do, where does it fall on that kind of timeline or arena of investigation? What, yeah, what so, are you working on? So if you think of that as a field, that's the, basically the field of social evolution, mm -hmm. the evolution of cooperation and conflict. And then there's a kind of another field, which you can think of as the study of social relationships. It's basically like the study of friendships, but beyond humans, right? But we don't call it friendship because that's a very anthropomorphic <laughs> term. But people, a lot of people are interested. There's been this a lot of interest in like animal social networks, and animal social integration, and the un, this new understanding that uh, social relationships, which we've known for a while, are really important for human health and well-being, your mental health, your physical health, are also important in many other species that live in groups and they have these individualized relationships and they know each other as individuals and they can have sort of friends and enemies within the same group. And the quality of their social life also has a big impact on their reproductive success and their health and, and well-being. And that's been one of the big findings in behavioral ecology over the last couple of decades. And so I guess what I'm trying to do is try to take these principles from social evolution about how cooperation is maintained and relate them to the regulation of social relationships. Like how do individuals go from being complete strangers where you might be in competition with each other over you know, resources, um, how do you go from that to, to forming the kind of relationships, for instance, that these vampire bats have where they're saving each other's lives. I mean, they're regurgitating their own blood for another individual, which is something that evolved to help offspring. They do that for their offspring, but they also do it for unrelated adults. It's based on this relationship that builds up over time. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so let's go ahead and talk about exactly what you do with the vampire bats and, you know, what where your research has gone lately. Um, I didn't know the vampire bats re regurgitated blood for each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
And is it more females than males? Yes. And what have you decided why? Um, well, f it's the social structure of it. I mean, we've studied the females so much more than the males because the, s the social relationships that we're interested in are, are pretty much relationships that form between females. Oh. So in the wild, you will have, if you, if you come across a group of bats, it's not a completely cohesive group. It's not like a baboon troop or something where all the individuals are living together for a really long time. It's actually a, um, vampire bats have what are called fission-fusion dynamics, which means that the groups that you see are temporary little aggregations. But if you track the individuals over time, you find out that they have these really stable relationships that are embedded in this, like these groups that are reforming each night. So if you go to a tree and you see a group of vampire bats, It'll be, it might be a different group when you go back the next day, but some of the individuals are the same, and if you track those individuals over time, they're switching roosts together or ending up in the same roost a lot. Huh. Um, and so that's basically what humans do, right? So if you look at a group of humans mm -hmm. and you come back to that same location later, it's a different group of humans, but that doesn't mean it's at random. So we, we are constantly forming and reforming groups, but we maintain relationships over time where we can, like, because we know everybody. It's like a network. Uh -huh. Sorry, we have it. We have a network of individuals that are close or distant to us, and we can sort of like lay those individuals out. Like these are the individuals I spend most of my time with. These are the individuals that I might occasionally see every once in a while, but I don't know them that well. And I think the vampire bats have a similar oh, wow. social structure. So you're studying uh, bat Facebook. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, a, a lot of this was mapped out by a biologist named Jerry Wilkinson, who I read about when I was a student. He went um, to Costa Rica and studied, basically mapped out the social structure of vampire bats. He found that you know, they were doing this food sharing behavior, and he did a, a simple experiment where he basically took bats that were unrelated. And this is what made it a big deal, is that all of the helping behavior in nature that people have been studying up to that point was, well, if you're doing something like regurgitating food to another individual, they're related to you, if you're non-human animal. Um, but what he found is that when he took unrelated individuals that were highly associated but unrelated, they fed food with each other, but they did it in a reciprocal way. So they fed food with the individuals that had fed them. So that so what does it so or describe a day in the life of a vampire bat? They go out, they find food, and they come back and bring some to their buddies or to the yeah. People? So what happens is the their um, the places where we study them, they live in these hollow trees, and they'll be in that tree for the entire day and night, except for a window of time like an hour, two hours, oh. where they leave. They go feed on animals, probably cows. Uh -huh. Vampire bats are have when cattle were introduced to Latin America, they basically it's the perfect Thank food you. for them, right? <laughs> I mean, it's the easiest thing they to go. They brought McDonald's. These, yeah, these cows are completely defenseless. There's almost nothing they can do. The vampire bat lands on their back or feeds on on the foot near the near the hoof, um, and oh, they they take about a tablespoon of blood, huh. and they come back to the roost. Despite the fact that it's really easy for them to get blood now compared to the environments they evolved in, they still fail to get blood because they're mm -hmm. extremely cautious because they live a really they can live a really long time. So there's records of bats living 18 years in the wild. Mm -hmm. We have records of them living 30 years in captivity. And unlike uh, you know a predator that needs to capture a live animal, well, only once in a while these vampire bats have to get blood every single day. Ah. So that means they can't if they if there's a one percent chance of them getting stomped on by a, an animal. They're not gonna make it, so they've gotta they've gotta be very cautious, and that's the way they act. I mean, they act they're very neurotic. They sort of <laughs> jump around and they creep up, and they're extremely cautious. And if the animal moves or does something, they'll fly away, and then they start all over again. But what they've got to do, like a mosquito, right? Like mosquitoes are a little they can be a little bit more bold because you know they don't live that long. But a vampire bat's gotta 
be perfect. So they, they creep up like a little ninja, and then on they the make ground? what on the ground, or they can. They'll often, if it's a large animal, they're, they'll go on the back of the animal, and they'll feed on just about anything. So mm-hmm. there's photos. There's a camera trap photo of one on a mountain lion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, crocodiles, Ooh, uh, cool. birds of prey. Doesn't matter what species. It doesn't have to be mammal. Yeah, almost any. I mean, they prefer yeah. mammals, huh. and they have um, their <laughs> their physiology. The common vampire bat is designed for mammalian blood, but they'll feed on anything. But anyway, they they make a tiny cut in the and then the blood comes out and they lick the wound. They have an anticoagulant in their saliva, which actually has been developed now to treat um, stroke patients, and it's like oh, one of the most wow. effective anticoagulants. But anyway, that's an aside. Point is, they have an anticoagulant in their cool saliva. Too. Yeah, that's yeah. also cool. <laughs> Um, they take uh, they take this blood and then they come back. But some of the bats don't get a meal, and they need to eat pretty much every every night. So if they miss two meals, they're weak. If they miss three meals, they'll they'll die. Um, but that's where the social safety net comes in. So they come back to the roost. If other bats uh, have fed, and you know you haven't fed, you might receive this donation of blood from another individual. Wow. So are there like deadbeat bats? <laughs> that's the whole question. So that's the whole thing I'm trying to understand is does a bat respond to how much another bat has fed it in the past? Huh. So if we have a relationship, if we have a reciprocal food sharing relationship where I feed you and you feed me, what happens if you stop feeding me? Do I keep feeding you because I inherently just value you as a member of my community? Or do I say, you know what, you're not a very you're a deadbeat partner. Like you're not a good Reciprocator, so I'm gonna try to form relationships with other individuals. That's the key thing that my research is trying to. This is the new right question. Uh-huh. Yeah, I kind of want to know how do you do this science? Like we're saying, oh, we studied this bat going over here and that bat going, and which one may be or may not be. How do you guys do that? Like, how- yeah, so we do lab studies where we have bats in captivity for short periods of time or for long periods of time. So we have a colony that we just started here. Mm. At Ohio State University, which is a gonna, we we hope to have as a very long term colony. How many? Um, around twenty twenty five mm-hmm. bats, and then um, we have a a colony in Panama. So we have these colonies for months at a time, where we just catch them from the wild, and we keep them in a a large flight cage that's on the edge of the rainforest. Mm. And then we also do field studies where we we use these proximity sensors. This thing there's a there's a it's like a clear yeah. match more maybe like a nine volt battery ish size things yeah, it's, it's much smaller than a nine volt battery i mean it's oh, like oh, it less is. than a gram yeah it's I mean, less it's a than very a gram. small okay. uh, device that we can glue on their fur uh-huh. and then these little proximity loggers or proximity sensors they're like a kind of wireless network where they all communicate to each other up to every two seconds wow and so then if we put them on a bunch of bats um we know the distance of all the bats to each other every minute, every hour, for wow. as long as the loggers are there. So what we've done is we've studied their relationships in the lab, we've studied their proximity in the wild, and we've gone from the lab to the wild uh-huh. and even back. So we've studied their relationships in the lab and watched how they've changed over time and then taken those individuals, released them to the wild, huh. then tagged other bats in the wild, and then we've compared how they interact with this wild group and with this other group that they've basically been like imprisoned with for more than a year and look at how it changes their relationships 
And then we've even like recaptured individuals that have been in the lab, lived in the wild now for two years, and then we've recaptured them, brought them back into the lab. So we can do this. Sounds like, like torture. Do they, well, get, <laughs> do they get kind of hot about that? Or What's they, that? <laughs> are they like, that's okay, because I know you're feeding me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they. Um, one of the things that was sort of funny was when we, we created one of these colonies, we brought all these bats in, and a couple of these bats, at least one of them for sure, had been in a previous long-term, so it had lived in this lab for almost two years, uh-huh. and then we brought it back, and when we put the blood feeders out, I mean, these are animals that have been feeding on live animals their whole life, and of course that one bat that knew, knew the setup <laughs> just flew down immediately, it was like, that's the blood, and started drinking from the blood, and the other ones are all, what is going on? Um, so they have, they have to learn to, to go from feeding live on live animals to feeding on these little... Do they watch each other? Do they teach each other? Come here, guys. Look so, um... People have found that other bats can learn about novel sources of food from other bats. So mm-hmm. as a that's a that's called social learning. But so how do they do it? Do they just watch each other or do they talk to each other? Um, well, I think that I mean it's kind of I I don't think there's any evidence that they tell each other new information that they've learned in their calls. Ah. But what they can do is they can vocalize, which then draws the attention of another individual. And then okay. they can learn from observation. So this sort of observational learning or um, I've watched you do something. I've discovered where food is because mm-hmm. I followed you there. We know that bats do that. Mm-hmm. But I think the sort of, um, you know, kind of referential communication where you have a sound that's linked to a concept or a thing in the right. external world and then that's used. I just don't know if we don't know if vampire bats do that. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't do that but it just hasn't been studied. That's been shown in some other species, like primates. So hmm. is it because, I'm just curious, they are the biggest bat, right? But what, what is? The vampire bats? No, vampire bats no. are no? 30 to 40 grams. Oh, okay. What size the size of your hand? They or? easily fit in the palm of your hand. Okay, gotcha. Um, so small brains. They have, For their size, they have large brains, and for their size, they have a very large neocortex. Okay. Um, so... Just back to the new ways to study these things, those little transponders, the ability to analyze all this like massive data, that must be changing the field on what you guys can learn. Yeah, so there's a lot of um, bio-logging, is what they call it. Uh-huh. So all different kinds of sensors that we put on animals. One are these proximity sensors. This is one example of where you could, for instance, put out 100 of these on different animals, and then you could track their how close everybody is to everybody continuously over time mm-hmm. that's a giant data set um, but the other thing people are doing is um, tracking animals with gps tags that are now on some some animals they're like permanent they've got solar things on mm-hmm. them and they you know on the back of some migrating birds oh and then there's an antenna on the international space station that's for tracking animals although there's been problems with that because it was like there's a whole thing with Russia was involved and now because of political stuff, it's all been, but these scientists are like pulling their hair out dealing with this like things. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, there's this effort now to, to track movements of animals all across the world continuously. Mm-hmm. Um, other kinds of biologgers, for instance, could track the temperature, the velocity, the, the um, you, know, you can get information like the heartbeat of the animal. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a lot of this kind of remote it's not called remote sensing. Remote sensing is something else. But the sense of th- this idea of let's put devices on animals and then 
track them and generate these huge data sets and then we can get a descriptive idea of what the animal is doing. So to give you a concrete example, I, was, I worked on a project briefly, actually left the project, but I worked on a project where we were putting GPS with little microphones attached to them on these bats that eat frogs. And so these bats, they, these, this is a bat that is known to sort of have a cultural-like transmission of social information where they can learn things from each other. And what they do is they fly out and they listen to all the different sounds of animals, but they learn all the different sounds so they can tell the poisonous frogs from the non-poisonous frogs from the calls. Wow. And these bats are, f so we put the GPS on them and they're flying so we know exactly where they're going. And what's recorded on the microphone is the echolocation calls the bat is making, which tells you, you know, where it's flying them as a certain kind of call when they're flying through clutter versus when they're flying in open space. We can hear the social calls that the bat makes to other bats. We can hear the calls of the other bats calling in the area. We can hear the frog calling. And then when the bat catches a frog, you hear the crunching of the frog's <laughs> body as the bat eats it. So what you have there is a complete description of behavior that no one really w observes that in the wild. You can observe it in labs. You can bring these bats into the lab and create a fake environment, a fake frog pond, and watch how they feed on a frog. But this is just, you, you know, it's like putting a camera on the bat and yeah. watching what it does. And people are doing that too. People are putting little cameras on animals and seeing where they go and what they do. That's amazing. That's amazing. So you, it, is it, it, it's resulting in new ways that you're thinking about um, bat sociology too, all of this extra information that you're able to gather. Is it changing how you think about what, in what you're learning? Yeah, I mean, f one thing is that it's giving us way more data. It's giving us more sort of um, objective data that's not, right? So the traditional idea of somebody studying animal behavior is like Jane Goodall, sitting out there with the chimpanzees yeah. all day and writing in her notebook about what she sees, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's like one person who's looking at one thing, and then there's this idea of like, well, what is she paying attention to, and what is she looking at? And it's all through the lens of her as a person. Now what we're doing is putting these little sensors out. They're not... There's no bias in terms of they want to focus on certain individuals, right? Mm -hmm. This is a this is actually a problem in animal behavior because, for instance, with songbirds, you know, the male songbird is brightly colored, the female's dull colored, so you just see what the males are doing more, and there's it creates all of these biases in terms of what people study. But now, with this technology, you can just sort of sample everything in a more systematic way. So that's one difference, um, and then the other thing is that there's a lot of animals that haven't been studied, like so, for instance, bats. There are no bat watchers, right? So <laughs> it's night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, there are, there have been labs that have run for a very long time with teams of students that are willing to go out and to go fly out to Africa and watch baboons all day. A lot of people will sign up for that because it's cool and baboons are interesting and they're very visible. Um, and same thing with birds. There's tons of people who would sit and watch birds all day. Yeah. Bats, you can't see them. You can't, you know, so when, when Jerry Wilkinson was studying vampire bats, he had to lay down in the base of a tree where there's just vampire bat feces just raining down on him. Oh, wow. And he had to just sit there with, like, cockroaches crawling all over and put his, like, mask and respirator on and then just, you know, he's got binoculars with a dim little light. It's just horrific conditions to try to observe these animals. And so you put, can put a camera in there you don't need to do yeah. that right? so I think technology has also opened a window into all kinds of animals that people either can't watch or nobody's interested in watching yeah. them yeah so what are you finding that's brand new um, yeah I mean one thing I think that's been exciting to find out is just the, the complexity of bat 
lives is probably more than a lot of people assumed. You know, people have always just sort of thought of bats as just living in these big colonies, and that's it. There's mm -hmm. nothing really interesting going on. But what we're finding is that they have these really nuanced, complex social relationships. Um, so there's a whole, for instance, and what we can do with our colonies is we really track these individuals over time. So my graduate student, he did this little report where he found that these two females that met in captivity and became sort of, to put in quotes, like best friends in quotes, meaning mm -hmm. that they never knew each other and they're put together. And then despite there being other bats that they've known for a long time, those two bats, for whatever reason, started huddling and grooming each other more than any other bats in uh -huh. those particular two adult females. One of those females had uh, gave birth to a pup. And then um, when the, while the pup was still nursing, she got sick and died. Cool. The second female adopted that pup. Wow. And then um, started lactating and basically became, it just adopted, it became like its new mother. So this pup had like inherited the social relationship that its mother had built. And we, my graduate student, had observed this entire thing like occurring over months and had detailed records on what happened on every day cool. right and so this is the kind of thing that we're just learning more in depth about these bats have what I think of as like primate like they're primate like relationships yeah. so these are things that people have observed in non-human yeah. primates for a long time but people just didn't think that bats had relationships like these that's fantastic I mean I think anybody who's got pets or herds of animals cows horses you we know that you know some of them like each other and some of them don't right but it, it, it's funny that no one had considered that large groups of wild animals would you know kind of have similar like one-to-one -one personalities relationships things like that that's the but yeah, that's the, I, the fact that you can track that now i mean a lot of what we do i think when i explain it to a lot of people it seems really obvious because it's like oh yeah of course like animals have friends and do all these things because you know, I have dogs and cats, and they have relationships with me. Like, they, you know, this is all known that dogs look at us, and they have this release of oxytocin just like we do when we look at them. <laughs> but I think what's interesting here is it's not just about comparing these other animals to humans and looking at how they're similar. I think there's fundamental insights that we get into human nature from these studies, too. And a lot of stuff that has been discovered in animal species ends up being true for humans. So there's a lot of things that we don't realize because they're not part of our conscious processing, like the importance of smell in human relationships. And this is stuff that was all explored in rodents, and then people said, do humans do this? Turns out we do, and it's all sort of subconscious, so we don't know we're doing it. And I think that when you think about why two people become friends or not, I think that's there's a lot of mystery there. We don't really understand mm -hmm. how friendships form or why they form or why two particular personalities turn out the way they do. Um, you know, how well can you predict uh, relationship outcomes, whether it's a, you know, like a marriage relationship or a friendship from the personalities of the individuals? How much of relationships are a product of the historical contingencies of what happens just, you know, by chance over the, over the lifespan versus because you have this personality, because you have this personality or these traits, you're definitely going to get along. Like, those are things that I don't feel like we fundamentally understand, and those are some things that we're trying to study with the bats. That's very cool. Is Cinder it for bats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are, are you gaining insights about, you know, the success of colonies or roosts and in more, like, group, group dynamics, too? So we don't study anything at the group level, and the reason is 
it's a question of scale. So if you want to study things at the group level, you have to have many, many groups. Mm. And so we just don't have the statistical power to do that. Yeah. So we're really looking at things at the individual and the relationship level. Okay. Cool. Cool. So I'm curious, the bat sounds you were talking about when you record them and things, are you identifying specific things that tell you they're relating to each other or they're not relating to each other? So I have a graduate student now, um, Julia, who's currently trying to understand the, the kinds of information that are in the calls and how that information is embedded in the call. So we know that um, what we currently think is, what we know is that the calls are variable uh, between individuals, so individuals sound different from each other, but there's also a lot of variation within an individual. So the bats have a sort of a individual signature to their calls, but also um, there's a lot of, why are they make so many different kinds of calls? We don't really understand any of it. It's like scratching the, the sure. surface, mm -hmm. right? Uh, um, there's many different kinds of calls they make. There's one particular kind of call we've been investigating, which I call a contact call, which is the call that the bats make when they're isolated. Because what we do to get them to share food is we basically fast a bat. We like starve a bat overnight <laughs> so it, it will be hungry. And then when we do that, we put it in a little isolation chamber and there's a microphone there. And so it's there calling to its group mates and we record all those calls. We've been doing that for like 10 years. Mm -hmm. We have a massive library. It's like 800,000 calls or something like wow. that. And no, for every bat. What we've found is that we have very good evidence that the calls are converging, meaning that vampire bats are vocal learners, mm -hmm. almost, oops, I shouldn't say, I mean, <laughs> we haven't published this yet, so I shouldn't say almost certainly, but I, <laughs> they're probably vocal learners, and it's, I think it's also probably the case that all bats are vocal learners, and we just haven't discovered that yet, but vocal learning is something that some people think is special, because you know, humans do that, it's the, the basis of language, and there's a few other animals that do that, but as far as we know, most animals don't learn to make calls they just make the calls that they make but they don't like change their calls and learn new calls but i think bats do that i think vampire bats do that but we're trying to understand you know what part of the call is um flexible in that way and are there different parts of the calls that convey different things and we're trying to look at you know there's certain structures if you break down a call there's certain aspects of the call that are that have a particular design or shape because of for instance the shape of your vocal tract other parts that you can control more or less because of you know the way that you can shape that vocal tract um, and bats can do this very well they're very good um, you know they're basically they use sound for everything they do they use sound to see they use sound to communicate they ex very good at extracting information from sound so right now we're just analyzing these calls like sh using statistical methods to try to piece yeah. apart the information inside do they have just enjoyable singing, like birds do, right? You know, if a bird is just in the morning singing their song to others or yeah, whatever. Yeah, do they play? Yeah, I think um, I think there's a lot of evidence for play in animals, and I think there's a lot of evidence that animals enjoy a lot of the things that they do. Um, but one thing I would say is that, like, a lot of times what, what biologists study is a function, mm -hmm. so our adaptation, so it's the typical behavioral ecologists especially, their typical approach is to look at a behavior and go, why are they doing that? Mm -hmm. Like from an evolutionary standpoint, how does that help you have pass on copies of your genes? And I would say that the answer to that question and the answer of how much do they enjoy it, those are not competing answers. It's often the case that the things that are really important to do, we really enjoy doing, right? And so um, 
this comes up with like when you think about play, um, it could be that that place has an adaptive function that's really important that when you're young that you play to for instance learn how your body works and all this stuff or learn how to integrate socially with others but at the same time the reason they do it is not is not for that purpose the reason is because it's really fun yeah um and so sex is another example right i mean it's not it's it serves a function but the the immediate motivation is not the propagation of the genes and so i think um I think, I think for instance, when the vampire bats are sharing food with each other, I think they really want to help each other, and they're what's called they have sort of pro-social motivations, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and that it's, uh, yeah, it's. it's I, I think, dig barfing for you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they. I don't think this is a calculated. So a lot of times when we think about reciprocity in vampire bats, it's a, it's in economic terms. How does this help? You know, how is the, so I think about everything as investments in return. So how does the bat get a return on its investment? But that can confuse people into thinking that these are like business relationships, but they're not. Uh I think they're, the bats have, they're um, motivated by sort of internal drives in the same way that people are compelled, they have an emotion that's triggered by certain cues. Um, To belong? To help others, to They're belong. Just, uh, it's yeah. kind of evidenced by the friendship that you saw Yeah, developing. and I, I think this is fascinating to think about with humans because humans don't... Um, the cues that trigger our sympathy are not rational. So if you see one child in front of you and you can hear them and see them and they're in trouble, everybody, unless you're a psychopath, is going to help this child. <laughs> but if you receive a postcard in the mail that says, a thousand children... <laughs> dying you can help just wave one child whatever most people are like oh, let me throw the postcard in the right and so it's not it's not the concept of helping another member of your species it's the sounds and sights and cues that trigger a sort of internal emotional response that you can't deny and you know that is um that's the biology of of the cooperative traits that we have there's certain things that we experience that compel us to want to help others uh, and those are not like economic decisions that's very cool that you can you can apply new science to learn about that really kind of crunchy kind of concept I like it it's it's neat yeah I, I think there um, there has been this like prickliness sometimes with people thinking that you know because evolutionary biologists, when they think about cooperation, they often use these kinds of like economic terms and economic principles. Yeah. Um, and people think that that means that uh, that we're, we're t- you're taking you're taking out thing emotions and love yeah. and you know unconditional devotion and all these things. But um, I don't see these things as competing at all. I think I think it gives us deep insight into yeah. why our emotions have the structure that they do. So, do bats get depressed? Um, we started talking mental health and... Yeah, I mean, I think like that's a fascinating question. I think it's a really important question. One of the reasons it's really important is that when we develop drugs for treating depression in humans, we have these traits that we observe in rats, and we, we think of that as like depression in a rat, and then we if the, if, if the drug huh. treats that, then we say, oh, this is a potential drug for treating this in humans. And so we, whether or not we want to, we draw analogies between 
depression and anxiety in humans and in other animals, like rats. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important, actually, to try to understand these things in other animals. We don't know much of anything about that in vampire bats because they're not a they're not a standard biomedical lab animal. Yeah. Um, I'm like the only person who's studying vampire bats to this degree in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, in the U.S. or in the world? In the world, I mean, there's not. Really? They're not a. They're not an animal that is like the go-to animal to study <laughs> anything really, except maybe like vampire bat rabies, and. And what we do. Powder, <laughs> powder the fungus that you always hear that story about bats. Well, those are other bats. I mean, there's yeah. a thousand four hundred, some somewhere between a, a fourteen hundred and fifteen hundred species of bats. Awesome. So there, uh, people think of bats as one animal. This is actually one of the reasons why people think that bat the a bat has like that so many diseases come from bats. Um, when you scale by the number of species, so people are like, ah, bats and rodents. There's, like, so many diseases that come from... But it's like, there's so many species of rodents, and there's so many species of bats, and what's happening, these are all different diseases that are coming from different species just because there's so many species, and yeah. then it all gets, ah, bat again. Yeah. But for me, um, you know, I just think of bats are all the flying mammals, which is a fourth of mammals. A fourth of mammals fly, and those are the bats. That's how wow. I think of bats. And so often what will happen is that when we do a story on vampire bats, someone will just grab a picture of any bat and show it um, <laughs> next to the story. Yeah. To me, that's like saying, oh, you know, um, cats really like this kind of cat food. And then there's a picture of like a tiger. You know, it's like that is not anywhere close to what yeah. all these bats are so distinct in my mind. Yeah. And bats are also ecologically, I think you could think of them as the most ecologically diverse mammals because they're. Besides the fact that they fly, I mean, everything else about them is really different. They feed on different things. I mean, vampire bats feed on blood. I was telling you about these frog eating bats. There's ones that eat fruit, insects, pollen and nectar, uh, bats that feed on fish hmm. in out of rivers, other bats that feed on fish out of the ocean, like all different kinds of diets. That's fascinating. There's bats that are, live in monogamous like pairs that live in giant aggregations of like a million individuals and other ones that have all different kinds of social structures all kinds of diets social structures sizes right bats six foot wingspan then there's a bat called the bumblebee bat that's like (laughs) this big so i want to meet that very small yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, the kitty's hognose bat that's the Uh bumblebee bat but one of the (laughs) smallest mammals so huge variation in everything and most people just think of a bat as like one kind of mammal the thing that you saw in your attic and yeah pants. <laughs> and then the other one is is it Australia where the big huge things come out of the, the big you see all of them flying in unison out of a cave. Uh, yeah, you can Australia? see that. You can see that many in places. Texas, oh, right? uh, in oh, Texas, right? In Texas, yeah. yeah. Bracken Cave in Texas, yeah. which is amazing. Funny. It's a it's an amazing thing to see. Mm-hmm. You were talking about how um, they exhibit primate like behavior. Did I read somewhere a theory that we're not really sure where bats sprung from, evolutionarily speaking, and maybe they're primates? Uh, that's been disproven, but for a while people thought oh. that maybe the flying foxes were actually more closely related to primates than to other bats because of the wiring of the eyes to the brain. But it's, it, no, they're all from the same, um, they're all from one common ancestor mm. about 15 million years ago in the Eocene. Mm-hmm. They're really... Well, bats branched off from other mammals back when all mammals were kind of these little shrew-like guys. Was it before primates branched yeah. off of other yeah. mammals? It's very basal ah. in the 
they branched off pretty early and then there's not a lot in terms of bat fossils because they're so small they don't preserve that well no. um, but if you go back I mean the closest thing we have is um, there's a bat uh, Onconicturus that has little it, it looks pretty much like a modern day bat except modern day bats have a claw on their thumb mm-hmm. and then the rest of the the ends of their fingers are just the ends of a wing and the flying foxes have a tiny little claw on their first finger. And then this bat, Onchronicturus, had a full wing, but there was a full little toenail oh. on every finger. Oh. That's the most ancient bat. And then you go past that, there's no, there's nothing. So tell me where you're going with your lab and these uh, bat relationships in ways other than just recording the sound and figuring it out or recording the movement and figuring it out. You're like really getting in there, right? With yeah, so we try to, the way we study their relationships is we try to track many different layers of information. So who spends time with who, who grooms who. The mm-hmm. grooming relationship is really important and seems to be how they build up to food sharing relationships mm-hmm. and who sh- shares food with who. And then we basically make a network of how all the bats' relationships are all connected. And then we try to track that network over time. And then what we want to do is try to manipulate the network and see if we can manipulate the relationships. Because if we can do that, we understand we understand the relationships if we can sort of control them in a sense. Mm-hmm. We also want to understand like how predictable the relationships are based on the traits of the individuals. And then uh, we do various manipul like we can do playback experiments. We can play sounds of bats or manipulate the sounds. Um, we want to track them in the wild. One of the things we want to do is make these what we what I'm calling the bat cow network. So we put these mm-hmm. proximity loggers on the vampire bats. Then we can put them on livestock like cows. Every time a bat meets that cow, we know exactly when and for how long. Huh. Then we can just track everybody for a long period of time. We could also put proximity sensors on other wildlife, for instance, other species of bats that live with vampire bats. They live in the same cave or the same tree. Do these vampire bats encounter these other species of bats? And the reason this is important is that for some reason that I <laughs> think I think will be obvious, there's a lot of people interested in diseases jumping from one species to another. <laughs> and vampire bats... Uh, you know, host a number of, they're very important in terms of being a reservoir and a vector for rabies. Um, They transmit rabies to livestock or to humans. I Mm -hmm. mean, it's a serious public health concern in Latin America because there are people who live out on the edge of the forest and these vampire bats can come and bite their children and you can get rabies from there. And it's a completely fatal disease. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we're doing is we want to build this network of who, which bats are going around and feeding on who at the individual level. This cow was fed on bats three, four, and six on nights, this and this, and get that complete record for everybody over time. Then what we want to do is do metagenomic sequencing of all those individuals. So we have to have them right in hand in order to put the loggers on them. Uh-huh. So we can um, get saliva and blood and you know any kind of sample. We can look at what kind of viruses and bacteria do these individuals carry. We can also say, are, are the individuals that are highly connected to the network, are they hosting more of these viruses mm-hmm. and bacteria wow. um that's like one direction and this this is not i'm sort of doing one part of this but this is a big collaboration yeah. with real disease ecologists and modelers of pathogen transmission on networks and it's sort of a big collaborative project um so that's one thing what came first i'm just curious like bats aren't born with rabies unless their mother had it right yeah i mean rabies is um transmitted saliva to to blood. Does the does rabies kill the bat? Yeah. It does. Yeah. Because it's a mammal, so right. 
Yeah, I mean, the issue is that bats, um, there's a lot of study of bats seem to be very um, resistant to a lot of diseases, meaning that they're not dying as quickly. That's what I was curious about. Yeah, but, uh, well, it's just that, I mean, there's there's a ton of research right now on the immune systems of bats and why they're why the immune systems of bats are so amazing. And people have been trying to understand that to try to develop all kinds of mm. anti-cancer things, anti-disease things. Um, but, but, but basically, as far as we know, I mean, vampire bats, the same thing happens to them as to happens to other mammals that get rabies, meaning... Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were bit by a rabid animal, one possibility is that it's a abortive infection, meaning that even though you've been exposed, your immune system just wins. You don't, the rabies doesn't invade your central nervous system. Mm-hmm. If rabies does invade your central nervous system, then you will, pretty much you'll die. Like there's no, there's like a, maybe a couple of people who've survived it. You can't um, get shots to quell it right you away? You can, yeah. But that... That is before. That's after exposure. So once you start coming up with symptoms, like once you're rabid, there's no real there's no coming cure. back. Yeah. Um, but what happens is that if you get bit by a rabid animal, animal, what you want to do is immediately go and get your post-exposure shots, and mm-hmm. then you're okay. Like, have you had to have lots of? Are you like? Can... I've been vaccinated so many times that my blood <laughs> could probably be used as a. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, um, I was gonna show you. I love. This bat's feeding off of a snake nose. Yes. Oh my gosh. How is that snake not just going home? Yeah, here's a picture of oh, the that's... snake darting after the bat, and then the bat's dodging the snake. So these vampire bats, I didn't even mention this because vampire bats are so amazing in so many ways, I can't go through everything. Yeah. They are like super bats. They're super strong for their size. They're super fast. They can do these jumps. So other bats, you put them on the ground, it's like a fish out of water, right? They're just, they can't really move very much. Vampire bats can run we can yeah. run them on treadmills huh? they can jump huh? into the air i need to see a bat on a treadmill i can show you i got so many <laughs> i got many we have videos of them running and jumping and doing all these things and that whole point of that photo is to show that the snake is like in strike pose and the bats like jumping around like they can they can yeah avoid Ninja, snakes Ninja bats. the yeah, bats like bite me they run around on the <laughs> ground and they're encountering a lot of predators on the ground um i mean they they're not invincible they get caught by cats and things and probably yeah, by, and by snakes too predator? um not sure but um cats are pretty good at catching bats snakes probably get bats a lot of snakes for instance will, in the tropics they'll go to the entrance of the cave and they'll just dangle their head down and then as the bats are flying out they just snag them oh, out of the wow. air but vampire bats are one of the only bats that run around on the ground and so they have to be really good on the ground, and so they can run and jump and do all these things. How are vampire bats doing in the wild? They're the I. Th- okay, I don't know if I should say this, but I, I think they're the only bat that benefits from humans. I mean, they are. Mm. They're doing fine. I mean, they're popular. Some people think their populations are, like, overpopulated, whatever that means. But the point is that because there's so much livestock. Yeah. Um. Vampire bats have a food source which is more plentiful and more available than anything in their evolutionary history. Are they exclusively South American? Are uh, bats and Central in... America and Mexico. Okay, but Western Hemisphere. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, in uh, our ecology, what, what what's their benefit? This is one of the most common questions I get, um, and 
I I think the, the they don't. I'm trying to think about how to. Uh -oh. There's many layers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, um, I'm not sure how the best answer this question, but <laughs> like, their organisms don't don't exist for the benefit of the ecosystem. So, um, what is the what is the role that humans play in the ecosystem? They exist and they they fill whatever niche they can. And vampire bats are parasites. Um, and but just like but you know, humans I mean, parasites in a, though. Well, in a, in the <laughs> parasites in the sense of that they're feeding on things without killing them, yeah. right? But from the standpoint of like deriving from the paras from the standpoint of like exploiting or another living thing all animals do that right mm -hmm. so you're if you're a predator you're eating other animals you're a parasite you're eating other animals without killing them and if you're an herbivore you're eating plants with or without killing them yeah. so all animals are basically turning other kinds of living things into themselves yeah. <laughs> and vampire bats are doing that and they don't <laughs> They, there are some benefits to people in terms of, for instance, like for instance, their saliva yeah. has been used to create uh, this like stroke medication, which is better than anything the humans have been able to synthesize. Um, there might be some other kinds of benefits in terms of, uh, you know, chemical, biochemicals or another, any kinds of like knowledge that we can extract from the genome of the vampire bat. Yeah. That's true of all other organisms. Sure. Um, but one of the things I try to say to people is that vampire bats are different from other bats because a lot of other bats do have these, they provide these ecosystem services which are so obviously valuable and to us. Eaters and that. Eating crop pests, for instance. Mm -hmm. So like... Don't some pollinate too? Yes. Um, mangoes, avocados, breadfruit, dates, figs, cashews. Oof tequila there's tons of products that we, like we that we consume that in the wild these plants rely on bats in some way either through seed dispersal or pollination so when people think about bats they go ah bats are great because they provide all these ecosystem services for humans vampire bats do are not one of those bats <laughs> vampire bats um affect humans by you know endangering their cattle and creating public health concern so they don't have that kind of use. But the thing I would point out is that the other species of bats don't do those things for our benefit either, right? Yeah. And we, we just know. So we have learned through science that, ah, this plant requires this pollinator, which requires blah, blah, blah. And so we don't know all the ways that all of these organisms. So I, I, I think the reason to protect biodiversity is not in the way that we often explain it is like, oh, this, this butterfly is important because this crop depends on it. But we don't know all the ways that these things affect each other. And so I try to Edge avoid people, avoid trying to talk about animals as like serving a benefit for humans or serving a benefit for the ecosystem as a whole because ecosystems aren't designed top down, right? They emerge from the interactions between all these organisms. There's a bottom up process. Is it only the vampire bat saliva or all bat saliva for the, the stroke? Um, vampire bat saliva. That one. There's three species of vampire bat, and this is like one of those species. Okay. Yeah. Oh, there are three. Yeah, the other two um, feed on birds, and they're rare. So the one that most people know is the common, or most people, the one that <laughs> most people who study vampire bats know about 
is the common vampire bat. Mm-hmm. And the other two are, um, well, one thing is funny about them is that they're adorable because they have these giant eyes and they're <laughs> really cute. Um, but they feed on birds more than mammals and they haven't benefited as much from cows and horses and things. Oh, interesting. That's got to be, t- like, do they have those battles in the air where they get them or they just land on them at night quietly and suck them? Well, there's a picture right here in this book of one of the, one of the bats that's uh, feeding on the toes of a chicken. It's the <laughs> white-winged vampire bat. And the way that it feeds is it climbs along the underside of a branch and then bites the toes. The it's other species... Tiny. Well, they're all about, that one's larger than the common vampire bat, slightly. Right. Vampire bats are just not that big in general. Um, and the other species, the, wet, the hairy-legged vampire bat, feeds like a giant tick. It attaches itself to the cloaca of a chicken. I mean, there's, um, it's fun, one of the greatest things about science is that you, um, you're, you, you can, like, interact with the literature in this way, where you read these things, you go, is that really true? You go and test it yourself. And you can change people's minds. Like, there's all this controversy. And one of the frustrating things about just, I don't know, intellectual life in general is that people seem to, like, never change their minds about anything, right? Like, we all have these philosophical points of view or whatever, and it's, like, impossible to get anyone to converge or communicate. And one of the nice things about science is that people can have the views that are fairly well entrenched, and you can go to them and say... This has happened with the vampire bats because a lot, a lot of what I've done with the vampire bat food sharing was to address a lot of controversy that had built up over time. So when Jerry Wilkinson published this idea of vampire bats sharing food with each other back and forth, but not because of like relatedness, it's very controversial. A lot of people didn't agree with it. And so I went and you know, talked with a number of these scientists and said, like, what's the experiment that would change your mind? Yeah. Go and you do the experiment. You come back. Here's the data. I did it. Here it is. And you just watch in real time people go, you know what? I was wrong. Like, that's amazing. I'm really shocked. They are doing something differently than what I thought. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the most satisfying things in science is as a student being able to, you have these people that you look up to as like, oh, this is like this intellectual giant in this field. And then they say something, you're like, I don't know about that. I don't agree with that. And you can engage with them in this. And there's very, it's not this like, I have intellectual, I'm the expert. It's like people are really concerned with the evidence. And so you can, even as a student, if you can gather that evidence in a way, if you can do it in a way where you're clever or just work really hard to get it, um, you can you can really influence the whole view in a, like the, in a little field that you work in. Yeah. And I find that that's like, there's something very satisfying about that. People being open-minded and basically rather than disagreeing with like, well, this is what I think whatever you know philosophically politically whatever you can sort of say what kinds of evidence would change your mind about this and let's like try to work together to gather that evidence i really like that about science it's Mm -hmm. like one of the things i most like about it i love that there's still enough open questions that there are still enough i mean you you just assume we've been all over this planet and we've seen every animal and you know, we, we just think we know everything, but we don't, I guess. There's a lot of open questions, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that not only do we not know almost anything, but, like, most of what we think we know is probably wrong, right? <laughs> so there's also this sense of what you're always trying to do as a scientist is, is you're, you're not... 
I remember I've had to explain this to my students, my, my undergraduate students, when they're getting into research. They like to talk about facts. And I'm like, we don't talk about facts. There's no like facts, <laughs> right? It's just, what's the evidence for different arguments? So you think this is what it is, and you think this. And so this is a thing that people disagree about. And so we go, well, what is the evidence for the different things? And you, you, what you want to do is think about different claims and put them on like a spectrum of certainty. So these are the things we're almost certain about. And these are the things that we're so certain about, we don't even talk about it anymore because we're so certain. And then as you climb down or up that ladder of certainty, you start getting to these things where, ah, oh, we could like easily push things in one direction or the other because so few people have looked at this. And I think um, it's a really good way of thinking about things in general. Like we don't really know ultimately for anything, but if you can take everything and sort of put it somewhere on that spectrum, it helps you sort of sort out what, where, the, where we should do the work and what things mm -hmm. we should um, investigate more rather than just classifying things as true or false. So I'm curious, I mean, you kind of asked about the future of your study in general, but where do you see the future of knowing both medically and sociologically these bats better will, will help people? I'm back to people I know. I'm self selfish that way. <laughs> I think there's still a lot to be understood about um, relationship formation and relationship regulation and all the subtle ways that, all the subtle force. I think there's a, a lot of sophisticated things going on under the hood in, in how relationships work. And I think, um, I'm not, I don't think necessarily that vampire bat relationships will tell us about human. I, basically, I know that vampire, what we learn about vampire bat relationships does not tell us anything about human relationships. But I think it, it makes a contribution in the sense of like giving us ideas about certain factors that we, we might not want to think about because we're a bit, when it comes to our own species, people have such, um, such strong intuitions about the ways that our relationships works that it can take a while to sort of understand that there are maybe some factors involved that are not we're not consciously aware of and so i think these animal studies can kind of help us with that and they can also help us understand the biological mechanisms that underlie these things like so a classic example is this this work in biology on uh the these voles these monogamous and promiscuous voles where we know from down to the level of the molecule so in the genome of this one species of these, this vole lineage that diverge into a promiscuous and a monogamous species. And the question is, well, what's different between the promiscuous and monogamous? We understand that at the ecological level, but we also understand it, and we understand at the behavioral level, we understand how they behave, but we understand it in the brain. We understand it down to the like gene and the little section of the gene where this tiny little section of DNA turns on this gene, which then turns on and expresses a receptor throughout the brain. If you have this receptor that's expressed throughout the brain, you're monogamous. And if you turn that off, you're promiscuous. <laughs> and you can turn that on and off in the voles. So you can go in and you Ew, can wow. genetically knock it out and you can make a bunch of voles that never form long-term relationships with other individuals. And you can then take those receptors and add them to this other species and make it monogamous. And so that gives us deep insight into like in the brain, the kinds of structures in the brain that, that can like turn these behaviors on and off. 
all of those brain structures, I mean, a lot of it is conserved, meaning that it's true of us too. Like yeah. we have these same kinds of, right? So the oxytocin, vasopressin system, a lot of these things are, um, by studying them in other animals, we, we can understand those things in humans. Nobody's going to want to do those studies in humans, right? Nobody's going to go in and <laughs> take the brains and knock out the genes. But now I don't know. Here, so I, now I get it. Right. And so missing that thing. this is another thing I think about with, uh, you know, these studies we do with, with other animals is that it gives us insights because we're, we're do basically manipulating things that you just can't do these things with humans. But um, it is extremely useful to know those mm -hmm. kinds of um, the biological basis of a lot of these these traits. Hmm. Uh, one of the, I think, more interesting discoveries is, for instance, in the study of personality, is that apparently personality is not explained by genes or environment in the sense of what we think of it, meaning that if you take fish and you have clonal fish, this is work done by a friend of mine, Kate Laskowski, who's not at UC Davis, she had these fish um, in identical, from the moment they're born, they're put into identical tanks. There's all this personality in fish, which you and can the, And they're clones. They're clones. So there's personality in fish, meaning if you put a fish in a tank, some fish explore the whole tank and swim around, and other ones like stay in one place, more or less. And this is true of all animals. They all have personality. They all have mm -hmm. distinct individualistic behavior. Mm -hmm. And then people think like, well, what is that? Is that genes and environment? How, is that? How does it all work? So she took out genes by basically, they're all clonally the same. They all have the same genome. Then she raised them in identical environments, all raised from the moment they're eggs. We put them in an identical little aquarium. Personality is the same. Wow. They have distinct Diverse. personalities even though they're genetically identical, raised in identical environments. And they're fish. We're not talking and about a primate. <laughs> yeah. And so what that says is that there's a lot of individuality that's built just into, we don't know if that's maternal effects, other things besides the genes that are affecting their development, or if it's just as you're developing in utero, your brain is being wired in certain ways, and mm -hmm. that's creating consistent behavior that you have that is completely unpredictable to all the things that we think of as being, oh, the genes and environment, how you're upbringing, could just be certain individuals turn out certain ways and, and it's just the roll of the dice and it's just the personality that you have. So I think there's a lot of things that we don't understand about why phenotypes are the way they are. So that's just some of the conversation we had with Jerry Carter. Again, you can find a longer version on our website, including an anecdote about a discovery that Carter made about the way that hairy-legged vampire bats feed involving chicken cloacas, which you might know are chicken butts. We weren't sure whether this was a story for a primetime audience, so to speak, but it's there in the full version at ohioside.com. You can find out more about Carter and his bat lab at socialbat.org, and you can learn even more about bats and meet some in person at the Ohio Bat Festival, which is taking place Saturday, October 29th at the Nationwide and Ohio Farm Bureau 4-H Center on the Ohio State University campus. There's a website for that event at Ohio Bat Festival. Thanks very much to Dr. Carter for giving us this interview. Please subscribe to our podcast, which you can get on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. And please stay tuned for more captivating science from Ohio Sci, your new favorite science podcast. Thanks for listening to Ohio Sci. Connect with us on our website, ohiosci.com.